Coming up next on The Jeff Crilly Show, you're going to meet a historian and lawyer who wrote this book. It comes out in just a couple of months, How the Best Did It, Lessons from Our Top Presidents. His journey just ahead. Many are predicting that the worst is yet to come, which is unfortunate, said one person here. Until now, they've enjoyed the reputation of being the nation's icebox. Watched a burglar in his home this morning by webcam. As a journalist of over 25 years, stories are what make my world turn. Reporting live from the Dallas Newsroom tonight, Jeff Crilly, Fox 4 News. But in 2008, I took the jump from my familiar life and started a PR firm from my home. We're talking about anyone with a camcorder like the one I'm using becomes a television network. We started slowly growing the company and we now have over a hundred clients and we've branched into the world of live digital broadcasting. I now own eight different TV studios and have a huge team. And the stories that I now get to share are sometimes the most important of my life. Life has a funny way of coming around full circle. This is the Jeff Crilly Show. Well, if you had to narrow down all the presidents to the top eight in terms of leadership, who would you pick? Well, my next guest is Talmadge Boston. He is an author and lawyer and historian, and he wrote this book. It comes out, and this is a, a sneak peek, folks, because it comes out in just a couple of months, and I'm honored to have you in the studio. Glad to be here, Jeff. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, your background in law, how did you get to start writing about presidents? Well, I've had a lifelong love of presidential history, and it started like most people's loves when you're a child. Uh, I grew up in Houston through the sixth grade, and, and when I was in the first and second grade, the Houston Co-45s came to town and later became the Houston Astros. And I collected baseball cards, and like all young kids, whatever you put in front, you memorize instantly. And so my mother became very concerned that the only thing that was in her young son's brain were baseball statistics. So before my seventh birthday, she went to a bookstore and she got a booklet that contained presidential trading cards. And they were exactly the same size as a baseball card. They had their picture on the front, on the back. When were they born? When did they die? When were they president? What were the most important things they did? And instantly I memorized them just like I did my baseball cards. So that was really the start. But as a child in the early 60s, America obviously was celebrating the centennial of the Civil War. Of course, Abraham Lincoln was a great hero. So I had a deep appreciation and admiration for Lincoln uh, at a very young age, and that inspired me to become a lawyer. Uh, but what lawyers do, and what I've done for 45 years, and what historians do are really very similar. We're in the research business, we're in the writing business, importantly, we're in the rewriting business, we're in the persuasion business. I'm an oral advocate for my books the same way I am for my clients. So there's many uh, similarities between being a historian and, and doing uh, litigation, which is what I've done for 45 years. Yeah, and he's a very talented interviewer. I've, I've gone to a couple of his, um, his author symposiums, and it's always standing room only. Let's talk about the book, How the Best Did It, Leadership Lessons from Our Top Presidents, and there it is on the screen. And it comes out when? April 2nd. April 2nd. Okay. I, I think it's a daunting task to try to narrow down it to just eight. So how did you pick the eight? Well, I picked really my eight favorite, who I happen to believe are the eight best. But every time a president leaves office and a new president comes in, C-SPAN, the television network, does a poll of the 150 leading historians in the country to rate all the presidents from best to worst in about 10 different categories. And after the last two changing of the guards in 2017 and 2021, uh, the 
for the most part, the, the rankings stayed the same. Number one, Lincoln. Number two, Washington. Number three, Franklin Roosevelt. Number four, Theodore Roosevelt. Number five, Eisenhower. Number six, Truman. Number seven, Jefferson. Number eight, Kennedy. And number nine, Reagan. Well, I think Truman's overrated. We can talk about it if you want to sure. as to why I think he is. And I think Reagan is underrated. I think in 2024, more people want to read about Reagan than they do about Truman. And so I'm, and also, since I'd like to sell the book to people who are both Republicans and Democrats, I want to have a good balance. Yes. So for the Democrats, I have Franklin Roosevelt and John F. Kennedy. For the Republicans, I have Eisenhower and Ronald Reagan. So that was, I made my choices of the eight being confirmed by the C-SPAN poll with the exception of the one trade-off, in my case, of Reagan over Truman. Well, you, you have so much knowledge. This show could actually be a two-hour show, but <laughs> we don't have that much time. So we're going to take these presidents one by one. Let's start with Washington. Uh, uh, why Washington, and uh, what did what did you learn uh, when you studied? Well, of course, Washington got it all started. And the thing about Washington, you think to be a great president, it's it's necessary to be eloquent. And of course, many of our great presidents were eloquent. But Washington knew that he was not a good speaker. Number one, he had a kind of a breathy voice because in childhood he had a respiratory illness that prevented him from being able to really boom his voice whenever he's talking to crowds, of course, in the days long before microphones. But he also had these horrible teeth, such that by the time he became president, he only had one tooth. So he had these incredible clumsy dentures that he stuck in his mouth. That's why you never see him smiling in any portrait. Uh, and, and just to talk with those dentures in his mouth was incredibly different. So Washington proves that you can be a great leader without being a great public speaker. And the amazing thing about him is wherever he went in his adult life, he kept being chosen for important tasks unanimously. He was unanimously chosen by the Continental Congress to lead the army in that Revolutionary War. He was unanimously chosen to preside over the Constitutional Convention. He was unanimously chosen to be president for his first term, and he was unanimously chosen to be president for his second term. And so there's four instances where everybody was on the same page. He was the only guy they wanted. Well, obviously, people understood his heroic military achievements and his capacity to bring people together and come up with a constitution that not only people could sign off on, but that the states could ratify. But he had this command presence. He was always perfectly groomed, uh, perfect posture, piercing eye contact to show he's listening to you. Uh, the portrait artist Gilbert Stewart said he had the eyes of the fiercest warrior in the jungle. And so if he's looking you in the eye and listening to you, you feel appreciated. He was the tallest guy in the room. He was six foot two, which in those days would probably be like being six foot nine today. Wow. And so he had all these things that presented this command presence. But he also had full-blown integrity. He never told a lie, just like the cherry tree fable. So he had 100% credibility in everything he said. But, but last but not least, he knew when to speak and when not to speak. And keep in mind, both at the Constitutional Convention and then during his presidency, there were factions. There were people at war with each other philosophically. And he knew that if he was going to take one side or the other, it would cause the division to grow. So he knew, I'm going to stay above the fray. I'm going to be a unifier, not a divider. And so those are the traits that cause me and historians to rank uh, Washington is our second greatest president. Okay, uh, Jefferson. Jefferson obviously is, uh, was a master writer, uh, the Declaration of Independence, uh, his most famous writing. Uh, he was not a good public speaker. In fact, 
He served as president for eight years, two terms, and during that time he gave two speeches, his two inaugural addresses. And what made him a great politician was not his capacity to speak to crowds. In those days it was hard, as I said, no microphones, but because he was such a great persuader and networker in small groups. So when he became president, the country was deeply divided between Federalists and what was then called the Republican Party, which was Jefferson Party, which ultimately evolved to today's Democrat Party, so it's a little bit confusing. But during Adams' presidency, they had passed, the Federalists had passed the Sedition Act, which made it a crime punishable by incarceration for anybody to criticize John Adams' president or Federalist policy. People were actually going to jail. So that was the country that Jefferson came into on his first day in office. So in that first inaugural address, trying to bring the country together, knowing this country is, is in its second decade. It may not last. We better find a way to become unified or else uh, we aren't gonna make it. And so he opened his inaugural address by saying, we are all Federalists. We are all Republicans, i.e. we are all Americans and we better figure out a way to come together. But then over the course of the next eight years, what he would do every week he would have dinner parties and invite Federalists, invite Republicans, and build relationships day after day, week after week, year after year, such that people started breaking down the walls, rapport was built across the aisle, and, and so that was Jefferson's uh, most important leadership gift was his capacity to, to bring people together who had been at odds with each other. You know, there's an old saying, politics is relationships. Yeah. If you got great relationships, you're going to be more successful at dealing with people. And there's another old saying that if you like somebody, you'll give them the benefit of the doubt. If you don't like them, you won't. So if you're involved in controversial political issues, you want people to give you the benefit of the doubt so that you can work together. And, and Jefferson, in building those relationships relentlessly, uh, proved to be... Uh, one of our top presidents. Boy, if only we could do that today. <laughs> all well, right. it, it's all yeah. about prioritizing building relationships. Right. And these days, people are priority, if you're in Congress, you're prioritizing fundraising. And you're also, uh, with the political system we have and the primaries, uh, the, the Republican candidates are always going to win, typically are on the far right. The Democrats are going to be on the far left. And so that causes problems that didn't exist in Jefferson's day, but are very real today. Okay, Lincoln obviously makes everybody's list. Uh, what did you learn about Lincoln as you studied him? Well, I've been learning about Lincoln my whole life. Uh, I've been reading every major biography that came out over the last few decades on him. So it wasn't a question of learning something, but it was really just kind of zeroing in on, on what made him so great. And one of the things in the book was, I didn't want to duplicate the leadership traits among the presidents, even though obviously there'd be some overlap. For example, one of Washington's most important traits that I write up in the first chapter is integrity and therefore credibility. Well, obviously Lincoln had integrity and credibility. I didn't want to duplicate. So Lincoln actually had all 24 traits in the book. That's why he's our greatest president ever. But in terms of finding something that was specific and unique to, to Lincoln, uh, number one was his magnanimity uh, toward others. Uh, we know about it uh, from the Civil War in terms of he had these very difficult Union generals like McClellan who was insulting him. He had cabinet members who were his rivals, Doris Kearns Goodwin's team of rivals, and yet he brought them into the cabinet. He wanted the smartest people. It didn't take long for them to realize, no, this guy really is the smartest guy in the room. Uh, 
So also during the war, he was magnanimous toward Union soldiers who deserted. He was very liberal in granting pardons for them so they could return to their families. Their life wouldn't be ruined. He, when the war was coming to an end, he was magnanimous toward the Confederacy. He wanted to bring people together to where the country could unify again. And he was magnanimous toward his wife, Mary. I mean, Mary was a very difficult woman. And she was a, a brilliant woman. She was an ambitious woman. And so she was instrumental in his rise. But he was always willing to take the high road and look past the interpersonal difficulties with one set of people or one person at a time. And that's a big part of his greatness. Uh, the other trait that he had was his capacity to keep his promises. I mean, Stephen Covey, you wrote the seven habits of most effective people then wrote a book called the eighth habit and he said i could put all these seven together into one trait is make and keep promises lincoln kept his word and he kept and, and so people uh, could trust him but you can keep your word and follow through when you have real vision that ultimately prevails and Lincoln, who I think is not only our most eloquent president, but also our most brilliant president, ultimately our most successful president, because he ended slavery, he won a war, he brought the country back together, uh, had the brilliance to see how best to win the war, how best to abolish slavery, and, and how best to bring the country back together, which of course didn't last long because he was killed just a few weeks after the surrender at Appomattox. Wow. Um, Teddy Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt was the president who created the phrase, the bully pulpit, that if you're president, you're a leader, you have a bully pulpit and you ought to use it. And, and Roosevelt was great at finding new and different ways where a president of the United States could see a problem that needed to be addressed that wasn't being addressed by anybody else. A perfect example, the second year of his presidency, there was this national coal strike. And the, the people in the North were about to be frozen to death because the, the coal workers were on strike. People couldn't get coal. They couldn't light their furnace. And uh, Roosevelt said, I'm the president. I've got the bully pulpit. I need to do something. And, and he did. And he brought the sides together. He mediated and came, produced a settlement that, that ended the strike and allowed the country to go on. He was so good at mediating where people were in dispute that Japan and Russia in 1905 said, hey, could you come over? We're in the middle of this war. Would you please mediate and see if you can bring peace to us? And he did. And for it, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. And, and so there were other instances around the world, the Moroccan crisis, the Second Hague crisis, where he's brought in, people are at war with each other through his force of personality, his total brilliance, his warmth, his personality, and his capacity to find places where there were common ground would allow him to, to bring uh, disputes into a resolution mode. Wow, I love your passion for these presidents. You really bring them to life. Uh, FDR. Franklin Roosevelt, of course, his triumph over polio is, in my mind, the greatest story in the history of presidential history. He was 39 years old when, when he got the polio virus, and he'd been very vigorous, very physically active, and all of a sudden, his legs wouldn't work. And so the way he willed himself back into politics, back into uh, ultimately receiving the, the Democratic uh, presidential nomination in 1932 and winning in a blowout election uh, the, that and then the next three elections, a total of four elections, is an amazing uh, testimony to the power of the human spirit to overcome adversity. But in terms of his being an effective president, he was a gifted communicator. 
and particularly in two areas. Number one, he knew how to speak to the crowds as a powerful orator with snap, crackle, and pop delivery. For example, his first inaugural address, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, he told to the American people in the middle of the Depression. And they believed it. They felt a little less fearful about their economic status. Pearl Harbor gets bombed and, and thousands are killed. And he gets on the radio. We're getting ready to enter World War II. December 7, 1941, a date that will live in infamy. And people just warmed up to him on the oratory side. But as importantly, they warmed up to him on the conversational side. He realized, really the first president realized the power of the radio. And so he had these fireside chats where he could speak to the country in a conversational tone and give them feelings that things were going to be okay. For example, he'd been president a grand total of eight days. And on the seventh day, he had closed every bank in the country because people were making a run on the banks. There was a total panic because of the Great Depression. People thought they wouldn't be able to get the money out of their banks. So Roosevelt shut them down. And then he goes on uh, the fireside chat on the national radio and says, here's what we did. Here's why we did it. Here's what we're going to do going forward. No reason to panic. It's all going to be okay. People listen to that. Next day, nobody's making a run on the banks. He calmed the nation down out of their panic. So uh, to be gifted as both an orator and in a conversational style is amazing. But his other great uh, communication gift was he had a great capacity to gauge public sentiment. Here's what the public's really thinking. And I got to know what they're thinking if I'm going to get them to think the way I want them to think. And so he was the first to really follow public opinion polls. Uh, he had frequent press conferences. Uh, his wife, Eleanor, was on the road all the time. He was listening to what she told him about what was going on around the country. He took train trips and car trips across the country talking to people. So he was in a steady mode of, of understanding what is today's public sentiment. And then, how can I speak to it? Well, if you try to overreach and try to get people to change something instantly that's totally foreign and different from what they're doing now, it's going to be hard to accept it. He was smart enough to say, no, I've got to take it one step at a time. And he did that particularly in the late 30s and early 40s, Hitler's taking over countries in Europe. And Americans are filled with isolationism. We didn't want to go fight another war halfway around the world. 20 years ago, we'd have World War I. We didn't want to do that again. But Roosevelt thought, if we don't do something, Hitler's going to take over Europe, Asia, Africa, Australia, everywhere. And of course, when he does all that, we're next. So he gets on the fireside chats and he just says, ladies and gentlemen, for this chat, this is not a chat about war. This is a chat about national security. And proceed to say, pull out your atlas. Pull out your whatever there is research-wise. The way weaponry is today, we are at risk. And if we just stay where we are, that's dangerous. We cannot allow this crazy enemy, Hitler, to establish a foothold close to us where we're going to be a target. And over time, people realize, you know, he's right. And this Hitler guy really is scary. And then, of course, when Pearl Harbor was, was bombed, it was easy to get the country to commit. But they got there because they were ready, because he'd been building them for, you know, at least two or three years, step by step, to where they realized, no, we cannot stay on the sidelines. This Hitler guy is too dangerous. <laughs> I can't get to listen to you all day. Eisenhower. 
Eisenhower, uh, one of my favorite stories, because when he left the White House in January 1961, people thought, oh, this guy's so old. All he ever did was play golf. Uh, he, he was not a, a great public speaker. He was not inspirational. And he was rated like uh, in the bottom uh, two-thirds of the president. He was like 24 out of 34 with the presidential ranking poll. Today, he's ranked fifth. So how could anybody make that kind of a jump? Well, the answer is all of his presidential papers, of course, when they leave office, they're confidential. And it takes a few years for them to become available to scholars. And once they did become available, scholars realize, oh, my gosh, this guy was in the big middle of everything. He was the guy who was making the decisions. And the decisions were good because the first thing Eisenhower did was bring an end to the Korean War, which Harry Truman had no idea how to end. During that campaign, Eisenhower told the American people, I will go to Korea. People that, man, if we just get Ike to go to Korea, he'll figure out a way to get us out of this deal. And he did. And so he came about and brought a truce within the first six months of his presidency. Thereafter, we had seven and a half years of peace and prosperity. Not an American soldier lost his life. And it took a while for people to say, you know what? Peace and prosperity, that, that's a pretty good thing to accomplish over a period of, of eight years and two terms in the presidency. And just this appreciation for the fact that, no, he wasn't playing golf and not paying attention and entrusting all these important decisions to others. He was in the big middle of it. He just wasn't promoting himself uh, in the media as, as the great brain and, and, and savior. For example, uh, the McCarthy crisis. He becomes president. We got the McCarthy crisis, the Red Scare, the witch hunts. And Truman had not had any clue about how to deal with it. Well, Eisenhower realized, I'm not going to go head-to-head -head with McCarthy. That's getting in the gutter with him. I don't want to be on his level. In fact, Eisenhower refused to say McCarthy's name in public. But he did get his team, and they worked together to come up a plan to give McCarthy just enough rope to hang himself, which by the summer of 1954, they did. The Army McCarthy hearings, Eisenhower let lawyer Joseph Welch do the dirty work, brought McCarthy down. Uh, success, no more Red Scare, no more McCarthyism, and Eisenhower never had to get his hands dirty. But he also, besides being known when to be patient, he also knew how to play hardball. The Suez Crisis in 1956, England, France, and Israel had gone against Eisenhower's wishes and had invaded Egypt and taken over the Suez Canal. Eisenhower was ticked. He had said, you're not going to do that. And they had said, no, we won't do it. And then they did it. And they did it because, oh my gosh, the election's coming up. He's not going to want to get in conflict with Israel. He didn't want to lose the Jewish vote in the election when they were wrong. Eisenhower said, no, you're not going to get away. By taking over the Suez Canal and invading Egypt, you are disrupting that part of the world and making it much more insecure. And so he immediately got the United Nations to impose sanctions. He refused when those three countries said, hey, can you get us some more oil? And he, ref and he uh, refused to extend dollars to help prop up the pound during all this. And then last but not least, when they said, okay, okay, we'll do a ceasefire, but then they didn't leave the area, uh, Eisenhower told his Secretary of Treasury, I want you to make a run on the British pound, buy up all the pounds you can, and he did. And Eisenhower then called the British Prime Minister and said, if you don't get all your tropes out of the Suez right now, I will drive your pound down to zero. <laughs> well, immediately, all the troops were gone. So Eisenhower knew when to be patient, knew when to play hardball, and 
uh, had eight years of peace and prosperity. So that's why he's ranked as our fifth greatest president. You're a brilliant storyteller. Uh, let's, well, thank okay, you. Kennedy. Kennedy. Now, Kennedy's amazing. And then you think, okay, eighth greatest president, and yet he served less than three years before he was assassinated. How could anybody be that effective and that admired in such a short period of time? Well, uh, one of the real keys, obviously, was he was incredibly eloquent. And it's one thing to be eloquent. It's something else that when your words actually inspire people to think differently. And, and, and he did that. I mean, in the 1960 election against Nixon, here he was. Uh, many people, uh, including Protestant religious leaders, were saying, we cannot have a Catholic president. We never had one before. We never should have one. He's going to be more obedient to the Pope than he is to the people in the United States. And Kennedy said, wrong. My loyalties to you. I'm swearing an oath to the Constitution. Yes, I'm a Catholic. That's not going to control how I'm president of the United States. People believed him. He won the election. 1961, his famous inaugural address, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And shortly thereafter, thousands and thousands and thousands of young people joined the Peace Corps. 1962, we're in the middle of the space race. He goes to Rice Stadium in Houston. He gives that famous speech about why it's important for us not only to up our game in the space race, but to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. He said, we do this not because it's easy, but because it's hard, because it's going to show what we're made of and we're going to win. And Congress all of a sudden said, okay, okay. And they funded uh, an increase in the space program. And obviously we succeeded in getting a man on the moon uh, before the end of the 1960s. Uh, and then in 1963, uh, we had this, uh, the height of the civil rights crisis, and particularly in Birmingham, where African-American adults on national television were being attacked by vicious attack dogs, and African-American children were being blasted by fire hoses. And, and Kennedy gets on television that night and says, this is no longer a political issue. This is a moral issue. This is our moral responsibility, and we can't wait on police control. We can't wait on demonstrations. We got to have Congress Act. We got to have our state and local governments act. But most importantly, each of us individually needs to transform our attitude toward this crisis. This is our moral responsibility. And within a couple of days, he submits a civil rights bill with teeth in it and was trying to get it passed when he got killed. And of course, thank goodness, LBJ stepped in, who is the, the greatest legislative genius probably in American history, and got the Civil Rights Act passed in July 1964. So Kennedy uh, changed the national uh, attitude toward Catholics, toward government service, toward uh, the space race and the moonshot, toward civil rights. So when you step back, and I haven't talked about when he went to Germany, here we are in the middle of the Cold War. Here's West Berlin and East Berlin divided, and, and West Berlin scared. They put up the Iron Curtain, the, the, the fence and the cement blocks, and, and they're a little island in the middle of Germany. And Kennedy gets in front of 450,000 people and says, if anybody know what it takes to be strong and brave and courageous in this day and time, let them come to Berlin. And at the end of it, he said, Ich bin ein Berliner. I am a Berliner. And, you know, crowd went wild and the whole mood toward their situation changed. So Kennedy was an amazingly gifted communicator. Reagan. Reagan. Uh, 
Reagan, and this was something got your question, what did I learn? I really didn't have an appreciation for exactly what it was that made Reagan so powerful and effective as a president that he could actually bring about the end of the Cold War when people didn't think that was possible. And the, the answer to that question, how did he do it, is this was maybe the greatest optimist in the history of our country. And not only was he optimistic, but he inspired optimism throughout the country. Keep in mind, he was elected and took office right after the Jimmy Carter presidency, where we had double digit inflation, low economic growth, high unemployment, long gas lines, and we couldn't rescue the hostages from Iran. We were in the dumps and Carter was incapable of injecting any level of optimism about the future. He was depressed and the country was depressed. Rose, uh, Reagan said, I'll have none of that. We are a great country. We're gonna be a shining city on the hill. Uh, we can do it. And, and people believed him. And, and he won in a landslide over Carter. Four years later, he won in a landslide over Mondale. Tip O'Neill and Democrat leaders said, this guy's too, too persuasive and, and uh, particularly uh, like the Tax Reform Act of 1986, were willing to cross the aisle to get the legislation that uh, Reagan wanted proposed. So I think his most important trait was that optimism that obviously was tied to his long-term vision. He could see an end to the Cold War. That's why he believed in Star Wars. He knew that the, the, the Russians could be brought down economically such that they couldn't possibly compete with this Star Wars idea uh, at uh, Reykjavik in, in, in Moscow. And so he brought them to their knees and thank goodness Gorbachev became their prime minister. He recognized that he had to respond uh, to the fact that they were running out of gas economically and they had to change their perspective entirely on dealing with the world thanks to Ronald Reagan. Wow, I can tell, this is going to be a runaway bestseller. And Wouldn't congratulations! Nice? Uh, wait, I, nice? I'm going to I'm going to leave you with this question. I'm going to put you on the spot. If you uh, had a magic wand and you could either redo Mount Rushmore or add a fifth face, who would you put on Mount Rushmore? Well, the fifth face would have to be Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, he's uh, he was president when Mount Rushmore was being uh, built and, and, and sculpted. And uh, in fact, he was there at the dedication. But for him to take the country through two great crises, the Great Depression and World War II, and to be such a radiant spirit of optimism when there were so many reasons to be pessimistic, whether about the economics or the world order, uh, he definitely uh, would be the, the, the fifth face. But uh, I think since there's four on Rushmore and, and the other four, Franklin Roosevelt, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Reagan. I think there should be a second rush more with those four guys. <laughs> you heard it here first. Go out and get this book. Again, when's the... When April 2nd. April 2nd. We're going to end with his website, which is talmadgeboston.com. I am humbled. Thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Jeff. You bet. That's it for now. We'll see you next time.